Foreign Relations Committee will come to order. Um, I want to say in advance, we've got about seven votes that are coming up uh, in about 40 minutes. And with the approval of our uh, ranking member and other members, I think what we may do, because that's probably too long of a period to have a recess, I would think, um, is we just move back and forth and alternate chairmen's uh, ranking members. We may have to substitute others to keep this going, but we certainly know the importance of this hearing. Um, I very much uh, want to thank our ranking member, Senator Menendez, and others for, uh, for uh, their tremendous uh, efforts in this regard, along with uh, Senator McCain. Um, I'll make sure I'm in the right place here. As Americans, we believe our government should secure, secure and, do, and not do harm to our rights. What this really means is that we believe in the rule of law. Where the rule of law is absent or weak, we know that we can expect to see governments, groups, and individuals violating the rights of others. Where societal norms have broken down, you aren't at all surprised to see the worst of human nature take over. And we don't, want to have to, we don't have to look too far around the world to find examples of how corruption distorts economics and fuels social conflict and how it robs citizens of, an opportunity, of opportunity and dignity. With similarly devastating effect for security and stability throughout the world, human rights abuses continue to manifest themselves in various forms, from disenfranchisement to unlawful imprisonment, torture, and even extermination. Yesterday, the ranking member and I were over at a presentation by the Holocaust Museum depicting uh, uh, a young man named Caesar who had, who had basically chronicled what was happening in prisons in Syria. Uh, it offends even the most basic, most basic human sensibilities. And to know that that is happening right now as we are sitting here in this hearing, that people are being tortured uh, in the most crass ways, ways that I think people never imagined could take place uh, in this time. Uh, so I very much, again, appreciate our ranking member's pursuit and certainly his impassioned comments yesterday. The world continues to look at the United States to defend basic freedoms and the rule of law when attacked. Furthering the cause for democratic governments and rule governance and rule-based economic systems always ha uh, also happens to benefit fit us here at home. Respect for individual rights not only defines us as Americans, but it is embedded in our foreign affairs laws by requiring the State Department's annual human rights report and human rights vetting for military training and creating authority to support civil society and the rule of law through foreign assistance. That certainly does not mean that we don't struggle to find the right balance between our concerns over human rights and competing interests. There's an additional balance to be struck between what we'd like to see happen on, human rights, on the human rights front and the reality of how much leverage our influence or influence we actually have to achieve these goals. Arguably, the human rights landscape changed over the past few years. After the end of the Cold War, our view of universal human rights and political freedom was dominant. But today, major international players simply do not accept these views and have not embraced the rule of law, countries like Russia and China, for example. Instead, they have used the rule of the law to criminalize, they have used law to criminalize dissent and isolate dissenters. 
Terrorist and criminal non-state actors also carry out unspeakable human rights violations. In addition, modern slavery violates the most fundamental human rights. As many as 27 million men and women, especially women and children, are held in conditions of slavery. And I'm proud that this committee passed out on a unanimous vote a bill that it appears uh, uh, may benefit from uh, appropriations and begin a process where the United States takes an even stronger lead in this issue. These victims are overwhelmingly poor and vulnerable, living without the protections of the rule of law. This reality should call us to action, to work to deepen our partnership with governments and civil society globally who are willing to work to eliminate modern slavery. I appreciate this committee for voting out the legislation on a unanimous basis, as I mentioned. I hope that uh, our witnesses today will help us explore these issues. I would just point out for the benefit of members that questions about human trafficking and modern slavery are best directed at our second panel since those issues aren't directly within the purview of Assistant Secretary Malinowski at the State Department. And with that, I recognize our distinguished ranking member, Senator Cardin, for opening comments. Well, Mr. Chairman, first, thank you so much, uh, not just for convening this hearing, uh, but for your championing of human rights. Uh, this committee has a very proud record of advancing uh, basic rights. Um, the trafficking legislation that you refer to, uh, your initiative there is very important. Uh, the United States has been the global leader in fighting modern day slavery. And uh, we thank you very much for your commitment to strengthen um, our position so that we can strengthen uh, the resolve internationally against uh, human trafficking. During the State Department reauthorization uh, discussions that we had, we included many provisions that strengthen basic human rights as part of our uh, foreign policy objectives, including uh, requiring uh, our State Department to assess the status of, of corruption globally. Uh, that's another advancement that this committee has shown, and it's been many, many, many uh, chapters of advancing human rights. Um, particularly, uh, just recently, uh, the Senate agreed with our position on Syria accountability. I mean, you, you mentioned yesterday's um, exhibit by, the photo exhibit by Cesar. Uh, yes, uh, we passed legislation that says the State Department should accumulate the information on war crimes committed by the Assad regime so that we can hold them accountable. So we have a, a strong track record. I'm particularly proud of the uh, Magnitsky Human Rights Accountability Act uh, that was passed by this committee and enacted into law in the last Congress, uh, and that we have set up a, a way to hold those who are responsible for gross violations of human rights accountable. As I said yesterday, Sergei Magnitsky was not the first Russian to be in a, uh, uh, incarcerated for no reason, tortured and killed, but he's one that we knew about. And due to the courage of Bill Browder, that information became public. And we took action to let the world know that we will stand by those who stand up against uh, the corruption, and we will help. And we passed the Magnitsky Accountability Act. Many said, why are we doing this? Why, are, why do we want to create this type of a challenge with our relationship between Russia and the United States? And it was very clear that we stand for certain basic principles, and we're going to make that clear. The United States is strongest when we not only get engaged, but we get engaged 
and stand by our principles. I, and we were successful in getting that legislation done. Uh, as a result, uh, dozens of people have been sanctioned. Many other countries have also taken action uh, to say that they will join us in our crusade against uh, the human rights violators. Uh, and we are seeing a different attitude. And quite frankly, lives have been saved. And people have been encouraged and change is taking place. So this hearing, I think, gives us a chance to focus on what we can do to strengthen that. One effort will be to change the Magnitsky Human Rights Accountability Act to the global Magnitsky Human Rights Accountability Act so that it will apply to all countries, not just Russia. I will just uh, remind the members of this committee, we so acted when we approved the law in our committee. It was changed in, in conference to be restricted solely to Russia as an accommodation uh, to uh, the House and an accommodation to the administration in order to get the bill enacted. I think now there is general consensus that this should be done globally. Quite frankly, the tools are being used by the administration today beyond Russia and other countries. What this does is legislate that, giving the administration, any administration, the tools to use, but also allowing for committees of Congress to initiate requests to the administration to review uh, those uh, individuals. Uh, I, this is a, a, a strong bipartisan bill. I, uh, you already acknowledged Senator McCain. Uh, Senator McCain has been a, a great leader on, on this crusade for human rights. I, I want to acknowledge uh, other uh, co-sponsors, Senator Shaheen, Rubio, Durbin, Wicker, Markey, Kirk, Blumenthal, Cruz. We have all spectrums of the political side. We come together on fighting for human rights globally. And lastly, Mr. Chairman, let me just acknowledge uh, Tom Molinowski and his incredible career, both in, in government and outside of government, crusading for human rights. Uh, he makes us all proud. He's taken on uh, not only uh, other governments and other people, it takes on at times the State Department, which we appreciate, and uh, is here to be able to testify, which we very much appreciate. I also want to acknowledge uh, Mark Lagan from the Freedom House. Freedom House has done incredible work in regards to uh, a globe, uh, in regards to human rights, and Sarah Morgan from the Human Rights Watch. Thank you, Senator, and again, thanks for your tremendous leadership uh, on this issue. Uh, I know this is one that uh, you spend a, spend a great deal of your career working on, and I thank you for that. Our first, our witness for the first panel today is Assistant Secretary of State for Democracy, Human Rights, and Labor, Tom Malinowski. Um, previously, he was Washington Director for Human Rights Watch. Uh, from 1998 to 2001, he served as Senior Director on the National Security Council at the White House from 1994 to 1998. He was a speechwriter for Secretaries uh, Warren Christopher and Madeleine Albright and a member of the Policy Planning Staff at the Department of State. It's good to have you before our committee. Uh, we, I, just, I first met Tom uh, having an adult beverage in Munich, I think, a few years ago. It's good to have you here. Um, I also want to welcome our other witnesses, uh, Professor Mark Professor Mark Lagon is the president of the Freedom House. Previously, he was uh, global politics and security chair at the Master of Science uh, in foreign policy program at Georgetown University. Uh, he was executive director and CEO of the leading anti-human trafficking nonprofit Polaris Project until January 2009. He also directed the Office of Monitor and Combat Traffic Trafficking in Persons at the U.S. Department of State 
He's also a staff alumnus to the Foreign Relations Committee. We welcome you back, Mark, and thank you for your great service here. Sarah Mar Margon is the Morgan is the Washington Director at Human Rights Watch. Prior to joining Human Rights Watch, she was Associate Director of Sustainable Security and Peacebuilding at the Center for American Progress. She also served as Senior Foreign Policy Advisor to Senator Russ Feingold and is also a staff alumni of the Foreign Relations Committee where she was Staff Director to the Subcommittee on African Affairs. Uh, we also welcome you back and know that both of you will treat, be treated exceptionally well. We thank you for being here today. Uh, I would remind all of you that uh, if you would, y'all have done this before, uh, comments, keep them to about five minutes. Your written comments will be made part of the record. And uh, we apologize for the votes that are getting ready to take place, but we thank you so much for uh, being here to help us uh, with this issue. And with that, uh, Tom, why don't you go ahead? Thank you so much, uh, Mr. Chairman, Senator Cardin. Thanks for holding this hearing. Thanks for uh, placing such a high priority on uh, these important bipartisan uh, issues. Um, and, and let me also thank you for uh, giving me such a small subject to try to summarize in, in, in five minutes. I, I'm going to, I'll try, I may. Hey, what, take six if you wish. Thank you. <laughs> so let, let, me, let me give you a general overview of what I see as the big opportunities and challenges, and, and then you can have at me on whatever, uh, what, whatever you like. So, you know, a, as you know, my work forces me to focus on the worst and most depressing things that are happening around the world. I, I often start when I talk about these things by trying to remind folks that um, there, there is a lot of uh, good stuff happening. Uh, in many parts of the world. A lot of people are still fighting the fight for human rights and for freedom, and, and they're winning. When I look back on the events of the last year, I, I think about the success of the Maidan movement in the Ukraine and all the work those folks are still doing to try to hold their country to the path that they have chosen. I, I think about Afghanistan and Indonesia and the elections that took place there were amongst all the choices people had. They went for the candidates who had the most progressive um, human rights-oriented visions for the future uh, of their country. I, I think about this remarkable movement for term limits that has started and spread throughout uh, Africa. The more recent elections in Nigeria, in Sri Lanka, where people um, risked so much to, to, to assert the right uh, to change uh, their leaders. About the opportunities I think we still have in Burma and the new opportunities that are emerging in Vietnam. And, and in all of these cases, the United States, we have played, I think, a very, very central role in supporting people who are fighting for their rights. And that ought to give us not just some hope for the future, but confidence in ourselves, a very, very important quality. Now, all that said, the global movement for human rights has run into some pretty significant headwinds. And there are days when it feels to me like the number and intensity of the crises we face is about as great as at any point uh, in recent history. So let me um, uh, mention what I think are three of the biggest overarching challenges we face. The first is the, uh, obviously, the brutality uh, of non-state actors like Daesh and Boko Haram and Al-Shabaab uh, and the Taliban groups that have launched systematically planned efforts to target whole groups of people because of their ethnicity uh, or faith and propagated an ideology that justifies, even celebrates, the killing and enslavement of 
people. Um, we have to defeat these groups, and that necessarily involves coercive measures. But at the same time, we have to remember what they came from. Uh, they didn't come from nothing. In many cases, uh, certainly true in Nigeria and Syria and Iraq, extremist groups uh, came to the fore driven by atrocities and human rights abuses and corruption committed by governments. And so our response to these groups also has to be consistent with the values of promoting human rights. And that leads me to the second overarching challenge that I think we face daily around the world, and that is the misapplication of counterterrorism and counterterrorism laws to stifle legitimate political dissent. When a Saudi counterterrorism court sentences a blogger to a thousand lashes, when Egypt uses the threat of terrorism to justify the prosecution of nonviolent opposition, when China prosecutes Uyghur scholars who promote moderation and reconciliation, it's not just a blow to human rights, it is a setback to effective counterterrorism. And so a great part of our engagement with partners in our coalitions against terrorism is about delivering the message that when the paths to nonviolent change are blocked, more and more people who have grievances are going to fall under the sway of extremist groups. Now the third big challenge, and you mentioned this, Mr. Chairman, is that for the first time in many, many years, we are facing a serious challenge to universal norms of human rights from two of the world's great powers, Russia and China. I think it's important in the case of Russia, for example, to recognize that the intervention in Ukraine that we have seen is profoundly related to President Putin's increasingly harsh crackdown domestically, uh, which has been building since 2011 when he faced those first effective protests against his rule. You have seen, of course, the uh, progression, the laws labeling NGOs uh, as uh, foreign agents or undesirable foreign organizations, the complete lack of progress and accountability for cases like Sergei Magnitsky, uh, the murder of opposition leaders, and so forth. Um, and this insecurity at home has increasingly led the Kremlin to view the assertion of a universal norm of human rights and democracy by governments, by civil society groups all around the world as a threat to uh, its interests. And so when a democratic experiment arose in Ukraine, Russia acted against a sovereign state to stop it, leading not just to a human rights crisis, but to a threat to global order. And in China, we're also seeing, um, in some ways, a very similar, uh, increasingly assertive set of measures to restrict civil society and to challenge the legitimacy of global norms that uphold the rights of civil society. In recent days, we've seen over 100 lawyers detained uh, in China who are defending the rights of others. We've seen the passage or proposal of laws on NGOs, on national security, that will empower the government to round up not just human rights groups, but to restrict the activities of everything from chambers of commerce to uh, groups that do student exchanges, work on environmental issues, everything that isn't controlled uh, by the government, all justified by an increasingly assertive official discourse of resisting what they call cultural infiltration from the United States and the international community. And unfortunately, we see this trend in a lot of other smaller countries that are able to point to the example of Russia and China to justify what uh, they are doing. Now, 
all of this is very bad news. I would suggest that the, the global crackdown on civil society that we're seeing is in part a response to the effectiveness and success of these movements um, over the last um, several uh, years. Um, so in a way, it's no surprise that authoritarian regimes are pushing back. What it means for us is we have to redouble our vigilance. So how do we do that? We have a lot of tools. Um, we have public and private diplomacy. We can mobilize other countries through the UN and other international organizations. We can put greater emphasis on issues like corruption. And that's something we are doing because we know not only is corruption linked to bad governance, to human rights abuses everywhere in the world, it is also one of the most important political vulnerabilities of regimes like Putin's, for example, and others, because it's the one thing they cannot justify at home uh, or abroad. Um, and finally, we have the option of imposing targeted sanctions, uh, particularly targeted financial sanctions. And, and as you uh, both know, this is uh, an option that I've supported in many cases. It's one that we have employed uh, as a government in a number of cases. It can be effective, but it isn't always the right answer. It's not something that we can uniformly do um, from the standpoint of effectiveness uh, in every single country um, that faces human rights uh, challenges. Um, and that's why I think we need the flexibility to work with you uh, to determine where that tool is likely to do more good than harm. So Senator Cardin, um, you mentioned the Global Magnitsky Act. I, I want to, first of all, um, commend you and thank you for all of the work that you have done uh, on the issues that we've been discussing over the years, um, including the work on, uh, on the act. And, um, and we very much appreciate your efforts to address uh, some of our concerns uh, in preserving that important flexibility um, to be able to uh, impose sanctions where it's going to be effective. Uh, and appropriate. And we very much look forward to working with you, with the committee uh, on this and other important legislation as you move forward. Thank you very much. Well, thank you very much for that testimony and um, very much appreciate your efforts in all of the places that you've served. So you talked about uh, Russia and let's just mention China in particular, but also other countries. We had a situation uh, come before us here recently where um, we are dealing with China on a civil nuclear agreement, uh, whereby we know that they are going to cheat and use that technology to help them in military activities. We know that's going to happen. And yet, uh, uh, it, you know, our country's entering into an agreement with them, and, uh, and because of the commercial interest uh, that exists relative to us uh, uh, working with China on commercial issues. So when it comes to uh, this particular issue, human rights, um, talk to me about how we deal with the balance. My guess is your greatest challenge at the State Department is that the State Department has multiple interests that it's uh, trying to accommodate and issues that they're trying to achieve or movements. So how do we balance that? Uh, to me, that is one of the greatest rubs that we have relative to human rights issues, is that we have other equities, if you will, with governments that sometimes compromise our abilities. I, I, first, I think it's important to be completely honest about that. Of course we have other interests, and I would be, would be silly of me to suggest that this is the only set of interests that the United States has in the world. 
I, I tend to resist the notion that um, our interest in promoting human rights and our interest in protecting our security, our prosperity, is that those interests are fundamentally at odds. I think sometimes we face short-term trade-offs where we may have to work with a particular country on something that is essential to our security right now. Um, and at times that may uh, lead us um, to calibrate our efforts on, uh, on other important issues. In the long run, and this is the point I was making about counterterrorism, um, and not just the very long run, but in medium term, um, it is, I don't think it is possible for us to secure the broad range of our interests in the world um, unless we are also working with and empowering ordinary people in countries like Russia and China and Afghanistan and Indonesia uh, and so on and so on. Um, most of our, and President Obama's made this clear, it's stated very plainly in our national security strategy, most of the most fundamental challenges to our national security around the world come from places where people's rights are not respected, and that is not a coincidence. Mm -hmm. So that's, that's the argument that I, that I make. Even in the cases where we have short-term trade-offs, there, there's no situation where we cannot stand up strongly and say what we think. Uh, in the case of China, we just had our strategic and economic dialogue here in Washington, and everybody involved from Secretary Kerry on down uh, pressed extremely hard on issues like the NGO law, the arrest of lawyers, Tibet, Xinjiang, um, making the argument that I just made, um, that these problems are related to many of our other concerns with China. And um, I think we find that even if all we are doing is making statements, governments around the world are profoundly sensitive to what the United States says and does not say. That's been one of the interesting things that I've learned uh, in this job, that even just what we say, what you say as a Congress, is heard uh, very clearly around the world and is taken very, very seriously. So there's always something that we can do even in those situations. And, and, and if you would, just for, for our education, what are some of the specific, when you say empower groups, mm -hmm. let's say, let's take China for instance, one of our jobs is to empower groups. What, what are some of the most effective ways that we do that? Uh, there, well, there are many different things that we can do. In some cases, we can provide direct support uh, to civil society organizations that are advocating for universal human rights. And is that permissible under the uh, leadership that exists in China right now? It, it, in some places it is harder, in some places it is, uh, uh, it is easier. Um, in some places um, we, uh, we are very careful about how we talk about what we do because of the difficulties. Um, we take our cue, of course, from those brave activists themselves. There are countries where for their own safety, uh, for their own interests, they feel like they cannot work with outside mm -hmm. uh, governments or groups. Um, so that's one way. Speaking out on their behalf, mm. frankly, is very, very important. I don't know how many times uh, it, I've had conversations with activists in other countries who have simply said, just speak out on our behalf. Mm. Remind us that we exist, that we are important, that we're not forgotten. Sometimes the targeted sanctions where that's appropriate are a good way of uh, empowering people because they feel somebody did something. Somebody 
um, imposed a degree of accountability for what is being done uh, to us. Wherever possible, we try to mobilize other countries. Um, and increasingly, one of the things that my bureau is doing is pooling funds with uh, other countries that are dedicated to the same principles so that we are able to respond collectively to cries for help from civil society uh, around the world. So many different things that we can do. Are we doing enough? Never. Um, we always face the challenge of doing more, and we'll continue to do our best. If, uh, you know, we, I think that the way the global Magnitsky bill is now drafted, the sanctions are permissive. They're not mandatory, is that correct? There is no required action by the administration to evaluate every human rights violator around the world. That's correct. And what would be just, I know that's something that's going to be a subject of debate, um, I guess as the administration would prefer not to see this enacted, I don't think there's necessarily been fond of this, but if there were mandatory sanctions, um, just give us practical implications of that. Um, th that would be a significant problem. Um, and that is the administration's position. It is my personal position. I, I, don't, I don't think, um, first of all, I, as I mentioned, I, I don't think that targeted financial sanctions are the answer to every single human rights abuse and human rights abuser in the world. If we were mandated by law to do it, we would have to have this objective process where the lawyers would say, if there is evidence, then we have to act. Um, Number two, the, the resource implications of that w would be just extraordinary, particularly for countries that have very small embassies, small posts, um, to have to be able to look at every single case that rises to the level to potentially the evidentiary standard um, in the legislation. Um, so I, I think that would, in a sense, break the bank. Um, I, I think, uh, again, very much appreciate the efforts that you have made Senator Cardin to make this about um, creating an authority um, to be able to uh, target individuals uh, around the world. Um, obviously, the, the, the Congress would retain its authority uh, to um, uh, impose, uh, to pass legislation that imposes sanctions on a variety of issues, variety of countries where you think it's appropriate. Um, so I think flexibility is preserved all around uh, with that approach. We've not taken a position on the legislation, neither positive nor negative, um, but it's something that we very much look forward to working with, uh, with you both on. Thank you very much. Senator Cardin. Well, Mr. Chairman, let me say we, we, we've always intended when the bill was originally introduced, the Mingritsky Law, that it would be authority to the executive branch to be able to use these tools and a mechanism where the legislative branch could uh, asked the executive branch to investigate specific cases, uh, but no mandatory aspect. And we thought that was the best way to go because, quite frankly, if it becomes mandatory, we, we were concerned about resources and cost and whether you really are going to diminish the importance of these tools to go after the cases where they can have the most impact, not only on the individual, but on the circumstances within the country and those who are fighting for human rights. Uh, so. It was intentionally designed that way. And I want to thank uh, Mr. Molinowski because uh, during the considerations of the bill, there was some 
uh, clarifications, and uh, we very much appreciate the input in, in making it clear our intentions on the legislation. I also just really want to underscore your point about putting a spotlight on issues. I've, I've been involved in the Helsinki Commission since my first days in the House of Representatives many years ago, uh, before the fall of the Soviet Union, and uh, the Helsinki Commission visiting a country and talking to the, the activists was incredibly valuable in changing the uh, human rights uh, records within many of the countries under the Soviet domination. And it was uh, a, a, one of the most important steps we took in order to liberate people and give them hope. And I think it contributed to the change uh, in the fall of the dominance of the Soviet Union. So that, that was an important step. Mr. Malinowski, I will urge you to carefully engage on the Trans-Pacific Partnership. I say that because Congress has spoken. The, the TPA, the authority that we have given, trade promotional authority that we have given to the administration, has one of its principal negotiating objectives, which means the administration must act in this area, good governance, anti-corruption, because we recognize that there are times when you can make progress. And when, you're, when countries want trade rights with the United States, they'll change. And this is an opportunity for countries that have less than satisfactory uh, progress on human rights to be able to do something positive. And uh, we need champions. Secondly, let me point out that your colleagues in the State Department working at the United Nations are working today on the Millennium Development Goals, the next chapter. Uh, there's a Millennium Goal 16 that's being proposed that deals with good governance. Now, this would be a major change. As you know, the Millennium Development Goals tried to, to deal with world poverty, to deal with uh, uh, women education, to deal with infant survival. Uh, and made tremendous progress. But as you pointed out in your testimony, if you have a corrupt society, you're not going to be able to do everything you need to keep babies alive or to deal with poverty or to deal with education. It's, it's corrosive to those accomplishments. So we are able to at least propose, and I would urge you also to get involved with your colleagues to make sure that we are successful in getting a good governance, anti-corruption, focus on the next rounds of Millennium Development Goals. We have to use every tool available. And that also includes the global Magnitsky. Uh, and I just want to ask you a question. Uh, the administration did uh, use uh, san targeted sanctions against seven individuals responsible for serious human rights violations in Venezuela. You were able to do that. Uh, what challenges did the administration face in the Venezuela case in being able to use targeted sanctions? Um, I would say there, there are, I would point to several challenges. One, and I think it's appropriate that we face this challenge, the evidentiary standard is quite high. And my colleagues uh, at the Treasury Department uh, insist that uh, when we propose the use of targeted sanctions for conduct, such as human rights abuses, that there be evidence, um, that we um, have solid evidence so that when we go to the banks, uh, we're not, um, you know, we, we don't expose ourselves to uh, potential legal action uh, and other measures by those uh, whom we sanction. 
So that's always a case. In the case of Venezuela, there was, um, there, there was some blowback, as I'm sure you saw, from, uh, from the region, including from some of our allies and partners in the region, um, and from the government of Venezuela itself, because under the, the, uh, the, the, the current law that grants us authority to impose these sanctions, IEPA, we have to, uh, when we target individuals, we have to uh, issue, the president has to issue an executive order that declares a state of national emergency with respect to that country. And the language of the executive order, the mandatory language, um, can um, and was in the case of Venezuela uh, be exploited to suggest that the United States uh, is in effect going to war against that country. Um, and so the government of Venezuela pointed to some of that language and said, you know, you see the Americans are, are coming after us, when in fact all we were doing was holding accountable a number of individuals uh, for abuses of human rights uh, and for corruption. And that's one of the reasons why we would suggest that the global Magnitsky bill could avoid those types of real problems, including statements that you have to make that is not necessarily productive to our relationship with other countries when we're going after human rights violators. So um, it, it, you've already pointed out these tools are, that targeted sanctions are valuable tools, so I, I won't reiterate that. But let me just make one last point on this. We have the separation of branches of government. There are not many other countries in the world that have that. We need to turn that into our advantage. You know, you can't control what Congress does. Sometimes that gives you an ability to go places and do things that you otherwise couldn't do. So I would just urge uh, the administration to play that more aggressively than you have in the past. Congress, yes, can initiate laws with sanctions. We can do it. We've done it. We've done it successfully. At times when the administration didn't want us to do it, really didn't want us to do it. We still did it. And the results, I would say, have been very, very positive not only for the advancement of human rights, but for advancement of many of our other goals in this country. So the Magnitsky Law Global is an effort to get that right, to give you the tools that you can use, but to also say there are going to be times when Congress wants an easier process, so we don't have to declare an emergency like you have to do today in using these tools. We don't have to pass a specific law. We can do it through our committees and direct you to take a look at an individual who we think deserves that type of attention. And I think it really does play to the strength of America's in independent branches of government, allowing you to do what you should, but also allowing Congress to carry out its role either by passing specific laws or directing the administration to take action. And again, I, I thank you for your incredible record, both in government and out of government, for what you've done to advance human rights. Thank you so much. Uh, there'll be a number of questions, I think, from other senators, and if you would answer those uh, fairly promptly, this helps us establish a record to, to deal with this legislation that I know you support and Senator Cardin as champion. So uh, thank you so much for being here. Thank you for your service. And I think in light of what's getting ready to happen with votes, it might be good to go ahead and bring the other uh, witnesses up. Let's hear their testimony, and then we can alternate. Uh, sorry this has been so brief. It's not out of uh, disrespect. <laughs> Uh, for, uh, well, uh, with us question, I mean, it's probably okay. So uh, anyway, thank you so much. Thank you so much. Um.
Thank you both for being here, and I know you've been introduced uh, just because of the way the seating order is. Uh, Sarah, if you'd like to start first, that would be that would be great. Sure, I'm happy to. Thanks. Uh, Chairman Corker, Ranking Member Cardin, other members of the committee, thank you for inviting me to testify today. Uh, as a former Senate staffer and a liaison to this committee, it's a particular honor to be here. So thank you. I'd like to specifically thank Senator Cardin for his long-standing commitment to fighting corruption and addressing global human rights abuses, including, but certainly not limited to, the bill we're discussing today, the Global Magnitsky Human Rights Accountability Act. Now, the world is undergoing incredible turmoil with grave implications for millions of people. If you look at countries where the Arab Spring took root, it has been replaced in many cases by conflict and repression. ISIS and other Islamic extremists are committing mass atrocities and threatening civilians not only in the Middle East, but in Asia, in Africa, and beyond. Even if we look past ISIS, many governments have sought to respond to the very real danger of armed militancy with a myopic security response. Legitimate counterterrorism measures are often coupled with an unprecedented crackdown on independent civil society and the media that receives, in many cases, little more than a passing criticism from the US and other countries. Governments such as Bahrain and Ethiopia have thrown peaceful activists and human rights defenders in jail for being outspoken under the guise of fighting terrorism. Partnerships with security forces and governments known to be both corrupt and abusive, from Egypt to Afghanistan to Uganda, appear to, receive, to be receiving less rather than more scrutiny from the United States. Around the world, we have documented how repressive government tactics often spark at least or at least exacerbate many of today's most pressing security challenges. And yet, human rights defenders challenge these injustices, risk harassment and attack, while those who threaten them generally do so with great impunity. It is within this framework that I'd like to discuss three countries where I actually think the Global Magnitsky Bill might be particularly valuable. Let's start with Iraq. More than 12 years after the US-led forces invaded Iraq, it's become quite clear that the country's transition to a functioning and stable democracy built on the rule of law is in tatters. Even before ISIS's dramatic territorial gains more than a year ago, human rights conditions were deteriorating dramatically. Iraq grappled with a weak criminal justice system plagued by serious corruption and political interference. Courts frequently based convictions on coerced confessions and trial proceedings that fell far short of international standards. At that time, the Iraq government was struggling to address bombings and attacks, and it employed draconian and abusive tactics by heavy-handed security forces, increasingly under the political influence of former Prime Minister Nouri al-Maliki, who also sponsored militias outside of regular security forces. ISIS's takeover of massive swaths of territory in June 2014 was a testament to the alienation of Sunni communities as many welcomed ISIS fighters as liberators from the sectarian oppression of government authorities. To put it simply, former Prime Minister Maliki's unchecked anti-Sunni policies created fertile ground for ISIS to escalate the conflict that has helped spawn today's crisis. A sanctioned regime like the one Global Magnitsky Bill would create is certainly no panacea for what we're facing there, but as a starting point, it sends a clear signal that the United States is not open for business to persons responsible for serious human rights abuses or large-scale corruption. It also has the potential to spur greater domestic accountability for such abuses, which is largely absent. Uzbekistan. Uzbekistan's human rights record is nothing short of atrocious. Thousands of people are imprisoned on politically motivated charges 
Torture is endemic, and the authorities regularly go after civil society activists, opposition members, and journalists in very barbaric ways. Muslims and Christians who practice their religion outside strict state controls are persecuted, and despite some changes in 2013 due to outside pressure, the government still forces an estimated two million adults to harvest cotton every fall under draconian conditions. Now, Washington has some tools to encourage reform, but they've not been used, despite a much reduced need to rely on Tashkent for the transit of US troop supplies out of Afghanistan. When it comes to Uzbekistan, the Obama administration needs a fresh approach that leans more in the direction, direction of strategic pressure instead of strategic patience, mainly because there is no evidence that officials who oversee or engage in torture, forced labor, or persecution of activists will change their behavior absent serious political or economic consequences. Very quickly on Bahrain. While the majority of Bahrainis are Shiite, the country is ruled by a Sunni-dominated autocratic monarchy that has shown no real reform, no real intention to reform, despite a number of cosmetic initiatives. In 2011, the authorities used lethal force to suppress a largely peaceful pro-democracy movement, which proved to be a turning point. King Hamad appointed an independent commission to look into human rights violations and dutifully accepted all of its recommendations, but little has been done to implement those recommendations. Efforts to restart a national dialogue have failed enough. Over the past year, Bahrain's main opposition party has refused to participate in the national dialogue process to protest authorities prosecuting some of its senior members for exercising their right to free speech. More generally, Bahrain's court convicts and imprisons peaceful dissenters, the trials we have been able to monitor have been exceptionally unfair. Here again, a global sanctioning regime like the, global bill, like the one the Global Magnitsky Bill intends to authorize could help add general pressure for a more rights-respecting political environment as it would provide the administration with the tools needed to show the opposition the United States has embraced their concerns as well beyond just the occasional release of a prisoner, which we saw last week and then again, the rearrest, despite the US decision to lift arms restrictions. I think I'll stop there. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you, Mark. Excuse um, me, doctor. <laughs> Mark is fine. Chairman Corker, Senator Cardin, um, thank you very much for inviting me uh, back uh, to testify. It's a pleasure. Um, I, I would like to talk very simply about the two kinds of human rights questions that you've called upon us to look at in a couple of uh, canny sets of tools um, that could really deal with them. On the one hand, where governments don't protect the most vulnerable people, uh, the scourge of human trafficking, and the area that Freedom House is more focused on, which is where repressive regimes repress and rob their citizens with corruption. Uh, there are canny tools that you have been working in the committee to advance. Senator Corker's legislation on uh, an anti-trafficking partnership fund and Senator Cardin's legislation on targeted sanctions. Um, I think these are exactly the kind of candy tools we should use. I have a couple of uh, overall messages. Human rights is not just about our values, but corruption, repression, trafficking, these engage strategic and economic interests of the United States. We need American leadership globally, and not only as a beacon for human dignity, but to advance our economic and strategic interests in these areas. If you look at the way General al-Sisi, since taking power, has instituted some of the harshest crackdown 
uh, that you have seen in modern Egyptian history and the way that terrorism has actually spiked as a result, one sees that there are actually security interests bound up in urging changes for human rights, um, all the while the U.S. giving uh, massive military assistance to Egypt. And my second major message is let's leverage the influence the United States has. Um, canny tools that maximize U.S. leverage don't cost much to the taxpayer and avoid harm to innocent people while putting pressure on um, those who, who need to change and to protect human rights are important. First, with respect to modern slavery, which the International Labor Organization and rather conservative estimates says is at least 21 million people in the world, um, is, a, is a terrible problem for the most vulnerable groups. Labor trafficking victimizes the most people. Sex trafficking yields the most profits for traffickers on the backs of its victims. Let's not only look at human trafficking as a matter of dignity and freedom, although that's why I wake up in the morning and, and come to work. Um, businesses and economies are harmed by the very problems that human trafficking represents. Businesses value their productivity, their reputations suffer when human trafficking is intermingled with their operations. Human trafficking is based on the antitheses of um, economic, uh, the economic growth, prosperity, um, and entrepreneurship that uh, we should be for. Um, in particular, on the case of um, Malaysia, uh, Freedom House supports the Trans-Pacific Partnership um, thanks to Senator Cardin and Senator Menendez, um, the administration has made some assurances that it will not um, uh, go soft on countries that deserve um, a tier three ranking. You really should watch as a matter of oversight in Malaysia and Thailand uh, in that respect. Um, on um, uh, human trafficking, Freedom House has endorsed Chairman Corker's End Modern Slavery Initiative Act is exactly the kind of tool we should pr um, proceed with, leveraging taxpayer resources with the resources of other nations, corporations, and philanthropies to fight modern slavery. As for the larger questions of authoritarianism and corruption, they're intermingled. And where people say that authoritarian rule brings about stability, they're wrong. Freedom House has documented that 90% of terrorist attacks in the world and 98% of terrorism fatalities occur in not free or partly free countries as opposed to um, free democracies. We have an interest in more countries becoming democracies for our counterterrorism policy. Corruption often fuels human rights abuses because corrupt officials will go to greater and greater lengths to protect um, their own economic uh, benefits and um, fight for staying in power. Freedom House has documented um, in its Freedom in the World report two major trends. One, um, that uh, authoritarian rulers are using more and more harsh traditional tactics in places like Egypt, Rwanda, Ethiopia, um, Vietnam, Azerbaijan, and Russia's invasion of Crimea outside its borders. Secondly, our research at Freedom House indicates that there's a key relationship between human rights and terrorism. Repression breeds more terrorism, and counterterrorism is being used as an excuse by governments to uh, impose their restrictions and repression on civil society for completely nonviolent, peaceful 
uh, uses. A more a recent newly passed national security law in China is just such a, an act. But let me finish with a, a few uh, brief further observations. In Iran and Cuba, the United States needs to leverage its diplomacy to look at human rights issues and not separate its diplomacy to either look in the case of Iran solely um, at the important issue of nuclear um, peace or in the case of Cuba treating diplomacy as an end in itself. The U.S. decision to plow forward full speed ahead with the restoration of diplomatic relations with Cuba just as 100 peaceful activists were being detained um, it, uh, sends troubling mixed messages. Let me end by uh, an important word about uh, an additional tool in the toolbox needed besides diplomacy. The Global Magnitsky Human Rights Accountability Act is something that Freedom House has endorsed, strongly believes would be an important and effective tool by imposing visa bans and asset freezes on foreign officials responsible for either human rights abuses or corruption. Four reasons to back it. A visa ban would draw international attention to the individuals responsible and put authoritarian leaders in a no-win situation. They either protect the repugnant officials responsible for human rights abuses and corruption, or they cut them loose and lose their own means for keeping power. Um, secondly, the, the act would impose tangible consequences so that perpetrators would be held to account. Um, they, those perpetrators might think twice if they aren't able to leave their country for the United States or access funds in U.S. banks. Third, by targeting high-level corruption, the bill goes right after the Achilles heel of authoritarian regimes. If there are some days in which citizens of countries find human rights an abstraction, they will never find corruption abstraction. They always understand that, and they have widespread support for going after their leaders for robbing them blind. And then finally, um, the Global Magnitsky Act, by not targeting particular nations uh, and allowing the, the executive branch and Congress with its referrals to um, have a targeted surgical approach, would allow sanctions to be applied to places like Saudi Arabia and Ethiopia so that you can deal with the larger economic and security interests and um, put pressure on those most responsible for corruption and human rights. So, uh, in order to deal with the problem of human trafficking for the most vulnerable people not being protected by states, or the bigger problem the Freedom House focuses on, which is the repression of people and the robbery of people by autocratic governments, these kinds of tools, um, both um, Senator Corker's bill on the Human Trafficking Fund and Senator Cardin's bill on targeted sanctions are exactly the kinds of lean um, um, targeted tools that, that we should use. We should think of Sergei Magnitsky um, and, the, and how we ought to look out for those who are being squeezed by corrupt and, and uh, hu human rights offending officials and put the squeeze on them. Thanks. Thank you both very much. Uh, just to not spend a great deal of time on this, uh, Dr. Ligon, but the, you mentioned Iran and Cuba. I mean, do you have any sense at present that we have put aside human rights issues in Cuba or, or Iran and pursuing other means, or are you just uh, pursuing other agreements, or are you just raising that issue to ensure that we don't? Well, I, you know, I have a huge regard for Assistant Secretary Malinowski. He's a longtime friend. I'm sure he's pushing these issues. But it's quite clear that on the Iran matter, there's been a complete delinkage with human rights. When you look this week and people going into the streets and celebrating the comprehensive sanctions being removed with the nuclear deal, some of those people said, now we need an agreement 
for our civil rights. Um, but the United States and the international community should be on the side of diplomacy applied to human rights as well as um, nuclear uh, matters. On Cuba, we should just be careful that diplomacy doesn't become an end in itself. Um, and it's, it's clear the Cuban regime uh, knew what it's doing in locking up 100 people at exactly the time the diplomatic relations were being put in place. Let's use the diplomacy to fight for reform. Mm -hmm. You want to mention something about that, uh, Ms. Margon? Sure. I was just going to say in the case of Cuba, I think actually by changing and lifting the embargo, what the administration has done is opened up a real opportunity to work with the Latin American countries on human rights in Cuba, which has long been missing given their stance on the embargo. In the case of Iran, there's obviously a lot to do, but there is potentially a new opening mm -hmm. uh, if we can move forward. Let me ask you both. Um, I wonder if you'd elaborate a little bit on the uh, on the issue of slavery, modern slavery, and its connection to really increasing criminal justice uh, systems' ability to deal with that. What we found and what we believe to be the case is that modern slavery is a, a crime of convenience. That since no one is uh, really pursuing, and since the poor don't have have access to criminal justice uh, the way the elite do. Uh, in essence, uh, uh, small business people uh, take advantage of it. Uh, there's no price to pay, but when there is a price to pay, when you actually have a system that uh, fights against that and arrests people, all of a sudden uh, it diminishes greatly. And I wonder if uh, either of you might want to respond to that. Well, if, if I might begin, I entirely agree with the premise, uh, Senator Corker, that you laid out in your opening statement, that this is about the absence of rule of law. Um, there are two basic um, phenomena here. There are whole groups of people, women, minorities, uh, Dalits in India, uh, some innocent migrants who go and work as guest workers in places that are um, not accorded access to justice. And um, so what happens is that the reward is much higher than the risk for the traffickers. And so both as a human rights matter and as a law enforcement matter, um, you need to have those rights uh, count. You know, for, for the woman who is a uh, domestic servant uh, in Kuwait and who's abused both because she's a woman and because she's a foreign national from the Philippines or Nepal, um, it, it, she has to be treated like a real human being. And those who are responsible for holding her passport for, or for beating her, uh, they need to be held to account. Would you want to respond? We're good. I think because of uh, the timing, I'm going to stop my questioning. I may interject later. I know that I think the two of you have just voted. Is that correct? I'm going to step and go vote. And if it's okay, would you become chairman of the committee for a while? Thank you. All right. Let me ask unanimous consent. No. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> thank you, Mr. Chairman. Uh, thanks for your confidence. Uh, I, I regret this uh, a footnote that I, I missed uh, Secretary Malinowski. I'd like to get an answer from him about the TIP report. And I'd also would have asked him how 2,822 arbitrary politically motivated arrests in Cuba during the first seven months of this year alone uh, is an indicator that we're going to be headed in the right direction. Pretty amazing to me. It's pretty amazing to me that when our colleagues in the Senate go to visit in Cuba, they don't visit with human rights activists, political dissidents, independent journalists, because if they do, they get barred from a government meeting. We've got to break that idea, because if globally the message we send 
is that in order to meet the government officials of a country, that we can't meet with human rights activists, political dissidents, independent journalists in China, in uh, Malaysia, and any other place in the world, uh, that will be a sad state of affairs for the United States. Uh, uh, Mr. Chairman, uh, uh, let me uh, start off by thanking Human Rights Watch, particularly your colleagues who do the hard work every day on behalf of trafficking victims around the world. Uh, for contributing your experience and expertise to our efforts. And before I proceed with some questions, I'd like to enter a couple of documents for the record, and I'm sure the chairman wouldn't mind. Uh, the first is a letter I sent yesterday to Secretary of State Kerry along with 18 of my colleagues, and I understand a similar letter in the House has nearly 130 signatures expressing our concern about reports of a possible unwarranted upgrade of Malaysia in this year's long-delayed trafficking in persons report. And the other document I'd like to submit in the record is a piece from yesterday's Hill by David Abramowitz, the Vice President of Humanity United on the same topic. And without objection, is so ordered. Mr. Ambassador, I'm glad you're here today. Your experience as our lead diplomat on this issue can help us get some perspective on what's going on right now. The 2015 TIP report, which we have still not seen, uh, will have the latest release date ever. So let me ask you, what's the normal reporting period covered by a TIP report? The TIP report uh, covers from March to March and comes out typically in June. <laughs> when this committee confirmed me as the TIP ambassador, I had to get on uh, with the job 10 days later, because that's when it was supposed to come out, by mm -hmm. mid-June. Um, it is unfortunate to leave an important job uh, vacant, uh, similar to uh, what occurred with the Ambassador for International Religious Freedom um, for a while. I'm, I'm very glad to see, finally see a nomination uh, seems to be moving forward. Um, but in any case, uh, the report, it, it really works. Mm -hmm. um, it, you know, it, 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 it uh, propels governments to try and change their laws. Yeah, well, I certainly appreciate your service in your previous iteration, and now I'm sure with your present leadership, uh, it will continue to be important. Now, I understand that it's not unprecedented for some late-breaking information after the closure of a reporting period that we just described has been included, but to your knowledge, have events or actions taken in June or July of a year ever affected a country's ranking? No. Uh, was it your personal experience when it comes to external pressure? Did you have external pressure to get to the right answer on a country's ranking because of other diplomatic or security concerns? There is always a pulling and hauling at the State Department, between, typically between the TIP office and the regional bureaus, where regional bureaus are raising other equities, security interests, counterterrorism issues, energy access, commercial concerns, um, in general, the department has come out in the right place, um, refereeing between those interests. I saw it during my tenure, mm -hmm. um, but I really commend you, and before you walked in the room, I commended you and Senator Cardin for raising in the context of the Trans-Pacific Partnership countries like Malaysia, and for that matter, Thailand, who would be affected uh, under the TPP. They should not be... Um, shielded from the basic minimum standards set out um, in the Trafficking Victims Protection Act. Well, as, as you know, my amendment prohibits uh, fast track for Tier 3 human trafficking countries uh, 
signed into law by President Obama as part of the Trade Promotion Authority. In your view, is that, that type of uh, action helpful in combating human trafficking? Well, I think uh, uh, you need to protect the um, integrity of, of the TIP report. Um, it, it is clear that Tier 3 rankings, whether they involve sanctions or just the uh, stigma of a Tier 3 ranking, work. And particularly where the United States has uh, a relationship on other grounds, on strategic and economic grounds, um, countries have responded to that. Allies of the United States, um, like um, Israel and Turkey in earlier eras, before I even came into the trafficking position, um, Cambodia so if, facing so the threat of Tier 3 or staying on Tier 3. So if, if, if the possibility of being on Tier 3 uh, of the TIP report was an incentivizing factor to change uh, your uh, actions, uh, move into action, pass the appropriate laws and whatnot, wouldn't even be a greater incentivizer that if in addition to being on Tier 3 and the TIP report, you get, can't get preferential access to U.S. markets? Well, I, th I think that, you know, it, it, it cuts against the idea of using the leverage. Oh. I think it's unfortunate that Tier 3 countries don't get the economic sanctions that uh, are intended for them, and that's waived. Um, oftentimes, but it's really important to put that more now, stigma on. Uh, I'd ask you and, and Ms. Morgano, I don't want you to feel I've left out here, uh, after complimenting your organization's great work. Uh, if, in fact, and I hope this is not the case, because I've seen nothing for Malaysia to move from Tier 3 to Tier 2, but if, in fact, that was the case, what would you say uh, about such an action? Thank you, Senator Menendez, and thank you for your leadership on this. We've, we've really enjoyed working with you. We also hope it's certainly not the case. Um, we understand a final, final decision may not have yet been made. We remain hopeful. But if, in fact, a decision has been made, we would say that it seems very likely that it would be political interference to move it up. And, and would it not have, my final question, and I'll turn to Senator Kane, would it not have the consequence beyond Malaysia that it would be political interference, would it not have the consequence of undermining the veracity of the TIP report in a way that other countries would say, well, if, it's, if I'm important enough to the United States for trade or for some other reason, then I don't have to really live up to worrying about if I am on tier three or not. I think it certainly undermines the TIP report. It sends a poor message to other countries who may be sanctioned or on the, uh, on the tier three list. It also undermines the goals, the presidentially stated goals of the TPP in terms of moving those countries in Asia into a better place. And that is part of the longer term vision that we would like to see uh, by having Malaysia make the required changes before it's moved up. Just yes. add one thing. Yeah. You know, the United States has been very comfortable putting uh, allies, uh, security allies like Saudi Arabia and Kuwait, Kuwait, a country that we marshaled our military forces to liberate, uh, on tier three to call it like it is. I'd like to see us even go farther on the broader human rights front and press those nations to reform. It's in their interests and in our security interests. As I well. agree with you. And, and the last point I'll make is that beyond the tip issue, if you start uh, political uh, maneuvering for the purposes of accomplishing a goal, 
Then, in addition to the human rights and trafficking question, you'd have to worry about labor rights and environmental issues that we are all concerned about in trade agreements and saying, will you manipulate those in order to meet the standards? Senator King. Thank you, Senator Menendez, and thanks to the, the witnesses. Just a couple of items. First, uh, Dr. Legan, I want to ask about the Americas. Um, the, uh, your, your Freedom in the World report from 2015 lists two pretty important American partners, Mexico and Colombia, as partly free, and I'm interested in having you elaborate on that and sort of give me the directional arrow, sort of partly free and improving or partly free and degrading. Well, uh, you know, Freedom House is proud of, of, of trying to call it like it is, and um, while it's not the State Department, it's great, and its reports do get the attention of the officials of other governments. I've learned in my six months tenure from the number of diplomats and officials I've, I've visited, it's almost as many as when I was the TIP ambassador. Uh, Colombia is an important partner of the United States and has much to admire. Um, but there are um, serious problems. Our colleagues at Transparency International indicate that it's number 94 out of 175 on, the, uh, on its corruption perceptions index. Um, there is, a, you know, the military still operates with relatively limited civilian oversight. Um, there have been soldiers uh, in the number of some 700 who've been convicted um, for crimes, but very few high-ranking officers uh, who have been. Um, so, uh, you know, even with our allies, we, we really need to look at, um, at the problems. They're right in the middle of the scale from one to seven on both um, political rights and civil liberties. Now, Mexico, we're very invested in at Freedom House. It may, not, it may not be widely known, but our reports are our most famous, but our programmatic work with civil society partners and governments around the world is actually the bulk of what we do. And we have a program in, in Mexico we work with authorities to try and protect journalists from violence. That really captures the problem in Mexico, where there's the structure of democracy, but um, criminality, corruption, violence are so um, suffusing the system um, that, for instance, journalists cannot um, be assured to have access to parts of the country to cover questions of criminality, drug trafficking, and so on, and we're, we're working on that. Uh, Mexico is one of the top legislative priorities of Freedom House. Um, it, is, it perfectly captures the broad theme of my opening statement, which is that our interests and our values go together, um, and we need to work on the governance and human rights problems in Mexico because, in fact, um, issues of immigration, drug trafficking, human trafficking uh, that are interested in the United States are bound up in that. Is the, uh, the violence that journalists experience in Mexico, is it uh, pretty variable around the country depending upon which state we're talking about? Yeah, it so is. So different is. states have done a better job of trying to tackle some of these transparency yeah. and violence issues? We had a, a retreat of Freedom House's, all of Freedom House's staff last week, and I had dinner late last week with the director of our, our Mexico office. She was telling me about that, that variation. It's not just where you, you would expect it to be, um, but you know certain areas where you see the maximum uh, trafficking, border regions with Central America particularly problematic. Um, from Freedom House's perspective, the president has made in his budget proposal a, a uh, proposed investment in the three countries in the Northern Triangle in Central America, Guatemala, Salvador, Honduras. They all have very serious human rights challenges. As we contemplate an investment of that magnitude, what are some of the things that you, know, you would hope 
some of those dollars would be devoted to to try to improve the um, human and uh, civil rights situations in those countries? Well, I think, uh, you know, honestly, we, it is a bargain to invest in civil society to be able to speak up for their rights, to know how they can get access to the justice system. Um, creating a situation in which journalists uh, feel safe to be able to cover corruption, cover violence. I mean, it's really striking um, how there are more people who are dying in Central America for uh, criminal violence than uh, one saw during the civil wars towards the end of the Cold War. Um, it, 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 so it, that investment uh, should be um, a high priority. It's not as if the United States hasn't invested money in these countries in this past. It's what we've been investing in. I, uh, I lived in Honduras during that kind of uh, Cold War, Civil War period in the 1980s, and uh, it really grieves me to see a nation that is actually more violent with a, quote, democratic government than it was under a military dictatorship where the oppression was very widespread, but the murder rate was dramatically lower. Really grieve for folks living in the region for that. Um, Ms. Morgan, thank you for Human Rights Watch's help. I recently did a CODEL to, to assess the war against ISIL in Iraq and also in northern Syria, visiting Gaziantep, Turkey, and you were helpful to my team in terms of understanding some of the human rights issues in Turkey, Kuwait, Iraq, and, and Syria. I wanted to ask you one question uh, dealing with that part of the world. You, human Rights Watch has indicated that the Kurdish armed group that controls much of northern Syria, they've achieved some significant battlefield success with the U.S. help. Uh, against ISIL, uh, that's a positive, but that they are having continuing challenges in not meeting their obligations to demobilize youth uh, soldiers, those under age 18. Um, how prevalent is this problem? Uh, is it limited just to Kurdish forces in northern Syria? Does it uh, flow over into Kurd the Kurdistan area in Iraq? Talk about that a little bit. Thank you. I hope it was a good trip. It was certainly a significant undertaking uh, during a short few days. Um, working, the, the Kurdish troops in, in, in Syria have actually tried from a lot of what my researchers have told me. In fact, one came back from a recent uh, trip. They have acknowledged that they have this problem and have tried to work with it. It, it, uh, it is obviously a complicated <clears throat> issue to demobilize children. Um, and when you're in the middle of a crisis, it is more difficult. But I do think that there is some commitment to do it. We obviously found that they haven't gone as far as they said they would. And so we are continuing to press them. The problem of, of, of child soldiers in that region is across the board rampant. I was in Iraq last fall and did not see any problem with the Kurdish troops from the KRG. Mm. That was not something, in fact, I saw what I saw there was very well behaved, very disciplined mm -hmm. uh, soldiers and commanders who were in deeply upset by what they're seeing with the Shia militias and were not at all shy to talk about it. So that I did not see in any way Good. in the KRG. But it is something we are working with and we are pleased that the, the, the YPG is open to working on it and trying to move to a better place. That is for us a very good sign as opposed to immediately denying it and rejecting that there's a problem. Yeah. If I could ask one more question right, right at the end of my time. Interested in each of, each of your thoughts uh, or either of your thoughts about the situation with the press in Egypt. Um, you know, another relationship that has been a strong partnership, not without tension, not without challenges. Um, I was in Egypt a little bit over a year ago with Senator King at a propitious moment in terms of the trial of uh, various Al Jazeera and other journalists. 
and tried to have a conversation with then General uh, Sisi, who's not yet president, but just about um, how difficult it is for the United States to understand trials and prosecutions and imprisonments of journalists. Our culture just makes that so hard to, to, to give any deference to. Talk a little bit about how uh, that has gone and is, 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 is it trending the right way or the wrong way? Uh, Press freedom. Do, do you want to start on that? Or? Sure, okay. the wrong way. <laughs> uh, you know, uh, and Freedom House uh, is really concerned about the direction things are going under LCC um, and, and frankly concerned about the continuation of U.S. military assistance and general assistance at the level it's at. Um, military authorities have shut down virtually all opposition media outlets following the coup, and, and it was a coup, um, and uh, it leaves state media and those private outlets that are openly pro-military uh, and pro-LCC, the ones that, that have a voice. Um, so it, it, you know, and, and part of our research is focused on freedom of the press. We have a dedicated mm -hmm. report on that we put out for 35 years. Um, the situation, the arrow is going down. I would, I, I, would, I would echo that. I mean, I think what we're seeing is a crackdown not just against uh, Islamic extremists and, and the Muslim Brotherhood under the guise of stability and security, but a crackdown against activists, independent thinkers, dissent, and independent media in a way that is actually reversing what the stated goals of the Egyptian president are. We are seeing a rise in attacks in Egypt and a rise in repression. The two parallel tracks are not going to get that country where it needs to be. And I would say that the administration uh, has not taken a strong enough stance uh, on that government. They may be a purported important partner in the fight against ISIS, but pushing issues of independent press, uh, activists, independent thought to the side, uh, and enabling increasingly repressive legislation, including ones that crack down very severely on NGOs uh, and independent mm -hmm. groups, is an unacceptable way forward. Thank you to both of you. I hand it back to you, Senator Carter. Well, Senator Kane, thank you for the question on Egypt. Uh, there's uh, a scheduled, not yet date-specific fall meeting at the ministerial level with Egypt, and uh, we are um, weighing in that human rights be part of that strategic dialogue. So um, I appreciate you raising the issue and, and the response because uh, there's great concern as to the direction of Egypt. Uh, let me thank both of you for your incredible work and support on bringing together workable strategies to advance uh, human rights globally. And I thank you for your testimony. Uh, let me just uh, uh, urge you uh, of an opportunity we have in regards to uh, using a tool such as the TIP report for corruption. Uh, the, uh, this committee in its reauthorization of the State Department Authorization Act moved in direction to require the State Department to assess the status of uh, human rights anti-corruption issues in every country in the world, similar to what we do in the trafficking in persons report. Uh, it, it is a first step. The trafficking in persons report's well established. It has consequences as to which, uh, which category tier you're on. Uh, we're not there yet on corruption, but we need to work on that. So I just urge you all to work with us as we try to put greater sensitivity in all of our foreign policy deliberations on the anti-corruption uh, agenda. We've done that with trafficking. We truly have. Witness the debate you have with Senator Menendez on whether we can move forward with the Trans-Pacific Partnership with Malaysia. There should be consequences, and there should be consequences for countries that do not meet 
established standards for dealing with corruption and are not taking steps to counter that. And we should be able to develop that. We're, uh, we're, uh, so working with groups such as Human Rights Watch and, uh, and Freedom House. So I just urge you to deal with that. Uh, let me ask you um, one question, if I might, about China. Uh, China is in the news a great deal. Uh, they're certainly watching what we're doing on the Trans-Pacific Partnership. The maritime security issues are of great concern. They just participated with us on the Iranian uh, negotiations. Uh, and we have regular strategic and economic dialogue with China where human rights are raised. In fact, we just had the seventh, which just concluded. And at just about the same time, the Chinese authorities detained and interrogated over 100 human rights lawyers and activists all across China. And the more and more reports that I am getting, it looks like China that everyone says on this great path of liberalization and great path of human rights, doesn't look like they're making too, many, too much progress today. Do we need to be more aggressive? Are the tools adequate for us to uh, help uh, the advancement of human rights in China? What else would you suggest? You first. <laughs> Thanks, Mark. Uh, thank you, Senator, for that question. We would agree with you. China is not moving in the right direction in terms of liberalization on human rights issues and the rule of law. In fact, it's very concerning to see where China is going. We understand that human rights issues may have been raised uh, at the, the recent dialogue. Assistant Secretary Malinowski said as much, but the problem is what we're seeing is that it is raised, there's no follow-up, and it is often not raised publicly. So I have a couple of suggestions um, on China, but I also think that if really implemented, a tool like the Global Magnitsky Bill could be a very effective tool and ostensibly the Chinese president should welcome a tool like that given his commitment to root out corruption as well. Um, briefly, I think the three things that would be helpful to see more of from the administration on China would include speaking publicly about the individual cases of detained uh, and attacked activists at the very highest level and across the entire US government. This happens sometimes, but not consistently. And from what we can tell, it's what most effectively challenges uh, and likely changes the calculations of senior officials. It doesn't cost anything, <laughs> it, it, and, and it would go a long way. We hear it time and time again from activists and the families of activists and victims. Um, the second is to visibly reach out to people outside the government. Uh, I think it was Senator Menendez who mentioned the importance of, of US government officials seeing civil society and others. And when, when the US goes to China, this is particularly important as a show of solidarity. Um, obviously, their security would need to be checked to make sure it wouldn't put them in any danger. But that would also be very important to do regularly. Um, and then finally, given the horrific developments over the last week or so, we would also suggest that the human rights and counterterrorism dialogues, I think they're expected in August, be postponed. Uh, so I'll stop there. Thanks. Well, I, I think, you know, the detention of our 100 uh, human rights lawyers and activists shows um, exactly uh, how much fear uh, the Chinese leadership has and uh, when it's about to enter a dialogue, you know, strategic economic dialogue with the United States, none. Um, and that we really do need to amp up uh, that, that emphasis on human rights, and it does need to be public. Um, it, we at Freedom House put out a report at the beginning of the year called the Politburo's Predicament that looks at the style and content of the leadership under Xi Jinping. It is getting markedly worse. Let us be clear. 
Um, it, it, there's uh, more centralized power in an individual's uh, hands um, with Xi than, uh, than anyone since Deng. Um, and we look at 17 different groups, sectors, um, faith groups uh, in uh, Chinese society, and a, a good number of those are, are uh, facing market increased pressure. Anti-corruption um, campaigns, which are seen as the sort of centerpiece of, of Xi's rule, um, are perfect manifestation of rule by law rather than rule of law. Who's getting targeted for corruption? Those people who are convenient to Xi and his inner circle to eliminate. And people who are useful to him are being allowed to uh, live high on the hog on the corruption they have. This is a perfect place to use a global uh, Magnitsky sanctions bill. It's sort of accepted among legislators, executive branch officials, um, business leaders that we will never have comprehensive sanctions on China. But this would be a great way to highlight corruption and those who are responsible for the most heinous human rights abuses um, and, and put the Chinese leadership in an even more precarious position in its high wire act as society would see what it's actually doing to them and repressing and robbing them. But let me thank you both for your testimonies and for those suggestions. And uh, I know our committee is going to continue to be very aggressive. Uh, the record will remain open till the close of business on Monday. Uh, we thank you for the disruptions as we've had as votes have been taking place during this hearing. And with that, the committee will stand adjourned. Thank you both.